want to ask you to turn your Bibles with me to Matthew 21 for the reading of God's Word. In verse 10, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And notice what Matthew records about this Palm Sunday event. Matthew 21, verse 10 says, When he, meaning Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. It is written, my house will be a house of prayer. My house, Jesus says, is a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He healed them. It's not on the screen, but the message goes on to say, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? A house of prayer that heals. A house of prayer where the next generation is singing, Hosanna. He is Jesus, the son of David. Father, we thank you for these words that have been preserved for our reading and our instruction. Would you move us? Would you inspire us? Thank you that as you think about your house, your church, your people, you call it your house of prayer. May we be that. Wherever we are, whatever we may be doing, may we be identified as your house of prayer. Speak to us. We didn't come to hear the voice of a person, but simply the voice of God. So Holy Spirit, anything that is not of you, would you silence and remove? May our hearts be turned towards you, our mind attentive to you now as you speak through the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated here in God's presence. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, team, for leading us. Hey, you made it through this frosty, wintry weather. Give yourselves a hand for showing up today and being here. And you're probably in your PJs at home drinking some hot chocolate or coffee. We love you too. We're so thankful that we can gather together this morning. I don't know about you, but I love the show Chosen, all first three seasons of it. Uh, I got hooked onto it as soon as, a few Chosen fans here. Okay, I like it. I know there's maybe some who aren't a fan, but I love the show. It really, in my mind, brings you into the personality of both Jesus and his followers. And it portrays the culture in which Jesus lived. The director of the show is a man by the name of Dallas Jenkins, and he is the co-writer, producer, and the director of the show. And I was with the leader in our community uh, who has spent extensive time with Jenkins. And he has spent a lot of time on the set of The Chosen. And he began to tell me that as Dallas Jenkins was thinking about how to portray Jesus, which is really important, that we accurately portray him, he began to read through the gospel accounts and look for key words that would be faithful to describe how people would have encountered Jesus. So after thinking long and hard about how people would, do, would encounter Jesus, they came up with four words. And these four words are written all over the set of the chosen because they are committed to portraying Jesus in any given scene as one of these four descriptions, these four words. And here are the four, four words that they came up with. Jesus is authentic. Jesus is intimate. 
Jesus is playful and Jesus is disruptive. Jesus, authentic, intimate, playful, and disruptive. Uh, if you've read through the gospel accounts, you can imagine scenes or moments in the gospel story where Jesus is these words, especially intimate and authentic and playful. But perhaps a descriptor, we kind of have a harder time with this Jesus being disruptive. It's hard to imagine a loving, patient, long-suffering, kind prince of peace being a disruptor, really. But he was indeed a disruptor. In fact, his life and message and resurrection disrupted the social, religious, and political order of the day, turning it upside down. Jesus wasn't a passive uh, please people every day, pet sheep all day long kind of a person. He was indeed a bit disruptive. Tomorrow, we pause as a country to remember the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And what God did in and through his life to move the needle forward for equality and justice in the civil rights movement. What an amazing, powerful move of God through his life. And one of the words that is used to describe his life's work is good trouble. Good trouble. It's when you, in a nonviolent, peaceful, principled manner, are actually disruptive. And you disrupt the thinking or the culture of the day. It's good trouble. In a nonviolent way, you are moving the needle towards equality and justice for all people. And this is partly what got him assassinated on April 4th. 1968, just 55 years ago. Good trouble. Well, Jesus here in our text in Matthew 21, he has one of those good trouble, disruptive moments. He goes into the temple and starts flipping tables. That's pretty disruptive if you ask me. Jesus actually did this in his ministry two times. Once at the beginning part of his earthly ministry, and now towards the end of his earthly ministry. If you go back to John 2 and you read the story, Jesus performs his first miracle, which is turning water into wine at a wedding. He loved to party. He loved to be in these moments with guests, singing, dancing, partying, and the wine ran out. And he turned into wine. But then from the wedding, being playful at a wedding, he goes right into the temple and starts flipping tables and driving out the money changers. In fact, you can imagine the disciples of Jesus, they're still getting to know Jesus. This is still like their dating season. I was like, who is this guy? They're still figuring, they're seeing this and they must be thinking, oh my, what have we just gotten ourselves into? In fact, John tells us what the disciples were thinking and his disciples in verse 17 of John 2. They remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. They saw this passion, zeal in Jesus for his house. And then and now, Jesus remains zealous for his house. This isn't my house, it's his house. And he remains passionately zealous for his house. So much that he'll disrupt anything else that doesn't align with his house. Well, now, in our text today, we're in Matthew 21. We're not at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're at the end of it. This is Passover week, the first day of Holy Week, Passion Week. In just a few days, he will be crucified. And once again, Jesus shows us the zeal he has for his house. It's the day he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And some are yelling, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there are others who don't know who he is. So look at Matthew 21, verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? Who is this? What an important question to ask. And I would propose to you that today, this is the most important question of your life. Who is this? Who is Jesus? In fact, your life, both here and forever, both on earth and eternity somewhere, hangs on the balance of wrestling through the question of who is Jesus? You got to wrestle with this question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? So the crowds are asking who is, or the city's asking who is this? And the crowd that's there, they have an answer like they always do. People seem to always have an answer for everything, don't they? Well, they've got an answer. Look what they say. Verse 11, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. As the question is being asked, who is this? The crowds form their own opinion. And they say, well, surely he's a prophet. They were thinking of the highest designation they could give to Jesus. And they say, well, he must be the prophet from Galilee, from Nazareth in Galilee. Let me tell you, people today all over the world are asking this question, who is Jesus? And the crowds, based on their perspective, their lived experience, based on who they follow on TikTok or social media, they always have an opinion of who Jesus is. He was a good religious leader, a pious rabbi, a good teacher, a martyr, a social activist, a refugee, a conservative, a progressive, a martyr, and the list goes on and on. People are constantly trying to figure out and put their words and assumptions to who Jesus is. But I think here is Matthew's point. This most consequential question of who Jesus is being asked in the city should not have been answered by those in the crowd. Rather, it should have been answered by those in the temple. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. The city is asking, who is Jesus? Crowds are forming their opinion. And where does Jesus go? Not to the city, but to the temple. See, those in the temple should have known who Jesus was. They've had the Torah. They've had God's word. They have read and studied and memorized over 300 prophecies of who the Messiah would be, all of which Jesus fulfilled. 4,000 years have gone by. They're waiting. They're praying. They're longing for the Messiah. And he shows up riding into their city, into Jerusalem. But they were so self-absorbed in their traditions and rituals and their own preconceived notions of who the Messiah would be, they missed him when they came. They should have known who he is, but they were unable to answer the question of their city. Who is Jesus? So the predicament we have today in this text is that when the temple is silent, the crowds are confused. And those who shouldn't know who Jesus is aren't actually describing him. The crowds form their own opinion. And today when the world is still asking this question, we cannot afford to be silent as the church of Jesus describing who he is identifying who he is based on his word, based on his life, who Jesus is. We must be ready to give an answer to this question of who he is. The city has the right questions. The people have the right questions. Who is Jesus? But they just have arrived at the wrong conclusion because the temple was silent. So Jesus goes into the house. Who should have known who he is? 
See, God's design from the Old Testament was that the temple of God would house the presence of God. This would be the place of prayer, people engaging, interacting with the holy God, and that God would send the nations to his house to discover him, to meet him. All the way back in Isaiah 56, God said this in verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. This is speaking about the temple. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This was God's design, his desire, his desire for his house. The people from the nations who are searching for God, who are longing for God, will stream into the temple, the presence of God, and there they will realize who God is because his temple will be a place, a house of prayer. So Jesus comes into that temple, and it's anything but that now. People in Jesus' day, they came from faraway places to come to the temple to meet God and simply offer worship to him. And as they're on this pilgrimage, they couldn't bring with them the sacrificial animals because it would take weeks and months perhaps on this pilgrimage to come to the temple. So they would have to buy these suitable, appropriate sacrificial animals at the temple. So there were servants and ministers of the temple selling animal sacrifices but what they had done was skyrocket the price, mark it up so much so that these people who would have to buy these animals are paying far more than they should, all so they could profit from it. They turned a sacred act of worship into a commercialized activity for selfish gain and profit. In the temple, you had to pay a temple tax and you had to pay money to buy these animals, but the temple would not take any currency from the Greeks or the Romans. They would only take a local Jewish temple currency. So there was money changers like you have at the airports when you travel today, exchange rates and money changers. And of course, people who were manning these money changing stations inflated the currency transaction rate so much so they can line their pockets and get rich. People are just coming to worship. But people who are supposed to facilitate and introduce people to God and help people worship are actually hurting them, taking advantage of them. Literally, Jesus says, thieves and robbers. And you may be here today, or maybe you can't even come into a building, but you're joining us online, and your story is that you've been wounded by people in church who are supposed to help you. Hurt by leaders and pastors or deacons or elders, I don't know. Maybe the people who are supposed to invite you and bring you in and facilitate an environment for you to worship God ended up being those that hurt you. Not because they were being truthful, they were just flat out being mean. Maybe they took from you, robbed from you, something sacred and special. And you've carried that wound all your heart and all your life in your heart. Here's what I want you to know. If you have been hurt by people in church, even leaders, you actually have a powerful advocate in Jesus. Jesus is actually the friend of those who have been robbed and taken from. Jesus is an advocate for those who in God's name would cause hurt and wound and abuse. Jesus is irate. It's an abomination 
for people within the temple who are supposed to help facilitate worship to take from those who have simply come to meet with God. And today my prayer is that he begins to heal the wounds of your heart as you release it to him and you realize he is a perfect father. He is good. And he invites you with the deepest parts of your pain and hurt. He says, come, would you release it to me? Let me heal you. And today he's here and present to do that, my friend. Jesus sees this. In his response to them, in verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Jesus is irate not just at the injustice that's happening, but the lack of prayer that's not happening. Because you can't have a house of God-centered prayer and a house of self-centered profit at the same time. It's not a house of prayer and a house of profit. You got to choose. Are you going to be God-centered in your heart, turn towards God, or be self-centered in your heart towards your own self? He is irate at the lack of prayer because this is supposed to be a place where people come from all over the nations to meet God, and now they're being taken advantage of. And so he drives out the money changers. He flips over the tables, drives out the animals that is here, and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So what does the zeal of Jesus toward his house have to do with us today? What does it mean for you and for me? Here's what it means. Today, you and I, we are the temple of God. The house of prayer isn't a physical building. It's a spiritual community. We gather in physical spaces like this, but you and I, collectively, we are the house of prayer. We are the house of God. That's why when we say in the morning, when you gather, not welcome to church, but welcome church. You're the church. We're the temple. Collectively, we are the temple of God. Each and every one of us, we are the house of prayer. Let me show it to you. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God. God's house, it's his church, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. First Peter 2, 5 says, you yourselves, each and every one of us, as living stones, a spiritual house. Who? You. We are the spiritual house. We are being built together to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just as there were sacrifices of the temple, in our life, we offer sacrifices acceptable to God. Why? Because you and I, we are the spiritual house of God. God saves individuals, but he forms a people. He saves individuals, but he is forming a people. He is collectively bringing together for himself a house of prayer, a people whose intimate relationship with Jesus is so authentic, so true and pure, that the most radiating aroma of your life is prayer. What's loud about you is prayer. Well, what's most seen in your life, replicated through you, cherished by you, is this intimate communion with God, this relationship you have with the Father, that the greatest marker of our life is to be a house of prayer. God didn't call his house a house of preaching, though there's preaching in it. He didn't call his house a house of music, though there's singing and music. He didn't call his house a house of program or production. He says, my house forever is to be a house of 
of prayer. Meaning in our singing and preaching and serving and giving and all that we do, it is saturated, marked by deep, intimate prayer. God-centered, God-focused prayer. The early church was birthed from a 10-day prayer meeting. Not a conference or concert. That's where we typically go to date at a launch of church. No, no, they gathered for 10 days and prayed, and the church was birthed. Acts 2 says the church was steadfast in prayer. Week to week, day to day, they remained steadfast in prayer, meaning they became the house of prayer. The disciples will go to the temple in the normal times of the day to pray. Peter and John were arrested and then threatened, did not preach the gospel anymore, and then released. And where did they go? Not to the earthly powers. They went to a prayer meeting so they could continue to preach with boldness. The church would fast and pray as they chose new leaders or appointed elders. Every time they prayed, they fasted and prayed. In Acts 13, when they appointed Paul and Barnabas as missionaries, they prayed, and it was out of a fasting and prayer meeting they were chosen. They prayed for signs and wonders to be done in their midst. Peter was imprisoned in a jail. And Mary's house, the Bible says, became a house of prayer. People gathered and prayed for Peter's release. And supernaturally, God opened the prison doors and he was freed. Mary's house became a house of prayer. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, they're in jail. Their feet are in stocks, covered in chains. Their feet are in stocks, but their heart was in prayer. The Bible says at the midnight hour, they were praying and singing hymns to God, worshiping God, praying to him, and immediately the foundations of the jail shook, and they were freed. Wherever you look, on every occasion, the early church was a house of prayer. See, the early church was powerful because the early church was prayerful. That was it. They didn't have the latest and greatest strategies. They were powerful. They changed the world. Incredibly powerful. Why? Because they were prayerful. It's been said that on Pentecost, the early church prayed for 10 days. And if you look at Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, it's a three-minute sermon. I know, that sounds really good. You're like, hey, you should do that more often. A three-minute sermon. They prayed for 10 days. Peter preached a three-minute sermon, and 3,000 people got saved. Today, we'll research and prep for 10 days, preach for 30, 40, 50 minutes sometimes, pray for three minutes. And we wonder why people aren't getting saved and transformed. Perhaps it's an invitation to come back to the heart of where our power is, which is in prayer with the Lord. I love the programs of our church, and we will continue to do that for all life stages and people and families in our church. But here's the deal. The power of our church isn't in our programs. It'll be in our prayers. I'm so thankful for the technology and the resources God has given to us, but the power of our church is not in the technology. It's in the tears of the saints. The power of our church is not in the consumption of information. It will be in the consistency of intercession. It's great to walk away with insights and information and, and theological concepts. That's wonderful. But the power of the church is not in the consumption of information. It's on our knees. It's in the consistency of intercession. Oh, a house of prayer that changes the world. 
When Peter gives instructions on gatherings and churches, notice what Peter tells Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all, Here's what's of most importance as you gather and as you form a church. I urge that petitions, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. First of all, let prayer mark your life. Let prayer mark your service. May, may prayer mark everything you do. First of all, prayer, petitions, and intercessions, and thanksgivings. Paul goes on. In 1 Timothy 2.8, and I love this, he says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. How? Lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. It's fascinating, isn't it? He's speaking directly to men. And here's why I think, because men tend to be a little bit more reserved in church. Ladies, sisters, you're far more expressive and free in your worship of God sometimes. But man, we can be more like this, can't we? Except for this afternoon at 3.30 when the Cowboys beat the Packers and we're watching a great man. We're all about it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw a few Packers fans this morning, but, but we, we forgive them. But, but man, we, guys, we can be more like this. And Paul says, man, I want you to pray in every place with lifting up your holy hands. So guys, do this for me. Man, would you just lift up both your hands right now, wherever you are, just right now. Even at home, just, I don't know if it's awkward, just lift up both hands. So Paul is saying when you gather, we ought to see more of this. We ought to see the saints of God, men and women, lifting up holy hands. And here's the deal. Keep, keep them up. It's hard to be mad at your wife when your hands are lifted like this in prayer. <laughs> it's hard to be mad at life when the posture of your heart is this. God, I surrender. I give it all to you. I release the posture of my life in prayer. You can put them down. Paul says, I want the lifting of hands because this is a house of prayer. Jesus so strongly called his house to be a house of prayer because only a house of prayer can adequately answer the question of who is Jesus. Only a house of prayer, walking with the Lord, marked by prayer, can do this. Because who Jesus is is more than an explanation. It has to be an encounter. Who Jesus is is more than a theological definition with beautiful, powerful words. It has to be an encounter with the living God. And that can only happen in houses of prayer. I can't convince, of any, I can't convince anybody of who Jesus is. I can only introduce them to, them to him. We can only introduce people to a living God. As they come to the throne of grace, as Hebrew says, and find the mercy, find grace, not in me, not in a great team of musicians and singers. No, no, no. We want our preaching and leading, all of it to lead people to the throne of grace where they have an encounter with the living God. And that's where our lives are transformed. Amen? That's where our life changes. What Jesus was doing in Matthew 21 was that he was fulfilling, let me give you one more thing, he was fulfilling Exodus 12, verse 15. In the book of Exodus, Moses is preparing the Israelites for their very first Passover. Not symbolically, but the actual Passover as they're in Egypt and they're about to have their Exodus experience. And the angel of death is going to pass over the children of God. Moses prepares them for their first exodus. But notice this instruction in Exodus 12, 15, as Moses prepares them. He says, you must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. It's an odd instruction, isn't it? 
as you prepare for the first exodus, here's what I want you to do. On the first day of Passover, on the first day of Holy Week, remove yeast and leaven. Yeast and leaven in the Jewish mind represented impurities. Things that hindered you from an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And so Moses says, I want you on the first day of the week to remove leaven and yeast. And in fact, Jewish homes still to this day, as they celebrate the Passover and remember the Passover, the fathers of a Jewish home, the father of a Jewish home will go and give his children a a candle and some reward. And they will say to them on the first day of the week of Passover, go throughout the whole house. Look for leaven and yeast, and if you find any, throw it away. Literally, turn upside down the couches and the cushion. Find breadcrumbs, find yeast, find If you find any, throw it out. Get rid of it. This is how they prepared for Passover. If you find the leaven, if you find yeast, get rid of it. So, with that in mind, Exodus 12, 15 in mind, imagine Jesus on the first day of Passover. Just a few days, he's going to be the Passover lamb who would deliver you and I from the slavery of sin. He's going to provide our spiritual excess. But here on the first day, he, the son of God, comes into his father's house. And he's doing exactly what Moses commanded the Israelites. He's removing the leaven, the yeast, from his father's house. Anything that distorted the people's view of God, he's saying, I'm here to cleanse the house of it. He's purging his house on the first day. He is driving out the money changers and those who are profiting from worship of God. He is cleaning his house. Jesus said in Luke 12, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Paul said in Galatians 5, just a little leaven ruins the whole batch of dough. Just a little. It all begins with just a little. So I think it's worth asking today, is there any leaven in my heart, in your heart, any yeast, anything impure, anything unlike Christ? Any desires, longings that do not match the way of Jesus, the word of God? Any sins we've tolerated for too long, any behaviors, any attitudes, maybe of pride or greed or unforgiveness or bitterness, anything we've held on to, it may be just a breadcrumb hidden somewhere in the recess of our heart, somewhere in the crevice of our soul. Is there a leaven that Jesus is actually saying, would, would you let me remove that? Can I purge the leaven in your heart? I've been praying, God, are, are there tables you want to flip over in our church? Agendas or programs, anything we've constructed that doesn't align with your vision for your bride, your house of prayer. God, we give you full freedom to purge your house. Make us a house of prayer for the nations. Make us this place of prayer for the nations. What's amazing when Jesus purged his house, the outcome, verse 14 of Matthew 21, when Jesus cleaned out his house, cleaned out the leaven, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. When the house of God was purged, the lame walked, and the blind saw. Miracles, healings, breakthrough happened. Why? Because his house house returned to him. And Jesus was right at home. And children began to shout, Hosanna. 
Every revival was preceded by a season of prayer. In fact, over the last 2,000 years, God has continually purged his house. There are seasons, even today, in some parts of the world, and maybe even here, where the house of God has a variety of yeast. And God is purging. Purging his house of the yeast of racism or prejudice, of the yeast of unforgiveness, disunity, purging us of our yeast of maybe prioritizing politics more than the gospel, cleansing his house of pride, self-centered ways. God is purging his house, purging his house of tolerating sinful behavior among the body, of turning a blind eye to abuse or being indifferent about abuse. God is purging his body all around the world. If the church has ever turned its back on the poor, the lost, God is returning the heart of the church to our Heavenly Father. He's purging his house. Would you stand with me? I wonder if there's an 11 in our heart that he's bringing to attention. I pray that our heart will be an altar of prayer, a house of prayer. We're going to sing, but this is a prayer. God, nothing else matters. In our homes, we want them our homes to be a house of prayer. We want our marriages here at Bentry to be houses of prayer. Why? Because grace is abundant in a house of prayer. Forgiveness and mercy are found in houses of prayer. Healing and restoration are possible. When a husband and wife begin to join hearts and hands in prayer, when a single adult looks to God in their dorm or in their apartment or in their house and say, God, make me a house of prayer. Why? Then our neighbors will know who Jesus is because they see in you an abiding presence of Jesus through intimate prayer life. So, Father, make us a house of prayer individually and collectively. May we be your house of prayer. Let's sing. Let's surrender. Let's pray together.